Oh, hey, it's me, David Robertson. And it's me, Christopher Cotter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. And it's you, the listener. And we're well into 2018 now, and time is tick, tick, ticking away. Um, and we've got an interview from someone you haven't heard in quite some time. It's Thomas J. Coleman III, speaking with Angela Vissuri on autism, religion, and imagination. Um, fantastic um, conglomeration of topics that I'm really looking forward to hearing Indeed. this. Indeed. Take it away, Tommy. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Thomas Coleman, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with a doctoral student at Sadaturn University and Yavle University, Ms. Ingela Vissuri who is conducting some fascinating multi-method research, which I suspect is going to change the way cognitive science of religion conceptualizes the relationship between individuals on the autism spectrum and belief, or lack thereof, in supernatural agents. Ingela, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks, Tommy. I'm so happy to be here. Good. <laughs> I was uh, hoping you could start by telling us briefly about how your research began, and then we will jump straight into some general questions and end with a more detailed account of your current research. Right. Uh, so I was always very interested in empathy and role-taking while I was at university doing my uh, basic courses. And uh, after graduating, uh, I started working in schools teaching religious education, which is a non-confessional subject here in Sweden. And by coincidence, uh, I was recruited to this special educational department with pupils who are on the autism spectrum. And at that time, it was just called Asperger's syndrome, which is high-functioning autism. And... Um, I had a pupil there at this uh, department who was a member of a Pentecostal congregation. Uh, and he used to ask me questions about glossolalia, and he didn't really understand why he didn't speak in tongues. Uh, and also he had had teachers who were religious, and they had told him that God used to speak to them and uh, told them a lot of different things. So one day this pupil said that, you know, Sometimes I think that God might be talking to everyone else but me. And for me, this was the moment when my research actually began, because I immediately came to think of uh, theories about how people use their empathy to communicate with invisible agents. And this was before I was acquainted with the cognitive science of religion. Mm -hmm. But already in the 50s, uh, in social psychology, there were such discussions, uh, which I knew about. So I decided first to write a master thesis, trying to explore how individuals who do have autism, but also have religion or spirituality in their lives, how does communication work for them with these invisible agents? And this was how I uh, slipped into the cognitive field, discovering that there were a lot of uh, interesting theories that could be useful. Wow. Very cool. Um, what is, so you had mentioned, of course, specifically the autism spectrum, or, or I think we'll call it the autism spectrum continuum. Um, what is that for our listeners? Uh, I wondered if you could give us a, a brief description. I would say that... Uh, autism is a different type of cognition 
And it's really a collection of symptoms. So, for instance, there are difficulties in the intuitive understanding of social communication. And there's also unusual sensory processing in individuals with autism. Uh, and just to exemplify, uh, people who don't have autism are typically unaware of uh, automatically responding to social cues that are really subtle, such as reading facial expressions or interpreting the intonation when speaking to people or, you know, uh, drawing information from body language. Uh, but for autistic people, this doesn't happen intuitively or automatically. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand that people who are high functioning and autistic, they are able to compensate by using their intelligence and verbal ability. So they may learn how to do it, but it takes a lot of effort because these responses are not automated. Gotcha. So what, what I uh, kind of summarizing here, I, I, if I understand correctly, that uh, individuals on the spectrum um, aren't lacking uh, cognitions per se, but they go about thinking about the world and particularly maybe other people in a little bit different way than we uh, neurotypicals might, your average person. Exactly. And I also think it's important in, in autism studies, uh, there's uh, an ongoing debate on the role of sensory perception. And I think this has been very much overlooked in the cognitive science of religion when we're discussing autism. And so, for instance, autistic people, they might be hypo or hypersensitive mm -hmm. to different social um, input. And this differs a lot between people, and it also differs between senses. It can fluctuate. And uh, there also seems to be difficulties in the synchronization of multimodal input. And I think this is also crucial when we're uh, trying to understand how autistic people experience the world. An example of multimodal input would be, I guess, uh, like listening to someone, watching them as they're speaking as well, um, just to give some examples. Exactly. So watching a movie, for instance, would be a multimodal experience, while reading a book is a unimodal experience. Now, why have cognitive scientists of religion been interested in individuals on the spectrum? Well, uh, cognitive researchers who depart from what is called the naturalness hypothesis of religion, they have expected that uh, social abilities such as mind reading or theory of mind, as it's also called at times, that this is what underpins belief in superhuman agents. So to figure out what gods or ghosts or ancestors want, you need to sort of think of their minds in a similar way as when you're thinking about agency in just any person, right? But since autism is a case of mind-reading difficulties, mm -hmm. uh, a number of scholars have expected that autistic people, they may not be able at all to mentalize with or believe in invisible agents. But for me, it was a little bit different, different because I had this teaching experience uh, and I couldn't really see any difference in my different classrooms because I was teaching autistic pupils uh, certain days and non-autistic pupils on other days. And I couldn't really see any difference between how many religious or spiritual pupils there would be in these groups or how many were, you know, really um, disinterested or atheistically oriented. So what I did was that I decided to turn the question around 
And I wanted to explore how individuals who do experience difficulties in social communication, why do they still engage in uh, invisible relations, right? Why do they keep on reading invisible minds if mind reading would be so difficult for them, right? right? So this was a starting point for the PhD thesis that I'm now working on. Fascinating. So, so you had some suspicions that maybe uh, the current state of the field and and CSR as it related to the autism spectrum might uh, might might be incomplete, and uh, was was hoping I guess then we could get into how some of your research perhaps challenges uh, and informs some of this this past theory. And and I guess we'll we'll add there hasn't been much work done on individuals on the spectrum uh, within cognitive science and religion. So. Right. And the previous research uh, has been uh, uh, quantitative and it's uh, uh, hypotheses that people are testing on large groups. But I decided to design an explorative study using mixed methods. And I'm also aiming to work a little bit like an anthropologist, yeah. because I think that all new fields of research, we need this phase before we move on to testing hypotheses, right? We need to explore the field. And what I'm doing is that I'm using my participants as experts because I'm not autistic, right? So I can never experience the world from an autistic perspective. So I need them to help me get insights into what's happening. So, for instance, I let them prepare their own interviews. Mm -hmm. And this is to minimize my own impact on the material. And also when I'm formulating my hypotheses, I discuss with both my participants, but also other people that I know that are on the spectrum, if they think that this makes sense to them. Because if, if it doesn't make sense to them, then it's probably not right. Right. Yeah. And my findings so far is that um, my participants in this study, they do really think of their preferred superhuman agents in relational terms. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a lot of mind reading going on in terms of thinking why these agents cause certain things to happen or what these agents think of uh, one's behavior. Like, am I, is this a good thing to do? Is it a bad thing to do? And then you would feel what God wants, for instance. And um, so I was hoping you could also maybe discuss some of the, the narratives that uh, your participants have shared with you and, and how do they relate or, or contrast with, um, with previous theory. So, yeah, I have an example from my uh, participant who calls himself John. Uh, <clears throat> and he calls himself a spiritual Christian. And when I asked him if there was a specific starting point for his current view of life, uh, he told me, uh, this is, so this is a quote from the interview, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it has developed because I, it kind of happened a couple of times, that if I did something that felt morally right or something, then I felt like I got quite happy and I was energized and it kind of felt like the world was more with me. It's like something agreed with what I did and said, that's good, gave me a pat on the shoulder and kind of, you did something right. And that, I think, developed into me doing something according to God. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also an interesting example because it begins with an emotion, an experience, mm -hmm. and that develops into what he perceives to be God. 
fascinating. So how then does, does uh, some of this research perhaps pose new questions for the field here to follow up on um, with, with more uh, anthropological, ethnographical research as well as uh, quantitative and perhaps experimental? Well, uh, I think, well, to begin with, I would like to challenge this previous supposition that we need intuitive mentalizing skills for interpreting superhuman agents. Um, and I actually think that when autistic people get rid of bodies, Mm-hmm. It helps mentalizing because you have both the automated uh, quick responses, right? And then you have the slower, more reflective responses. Mm-hmm. And despite lacking the intuitive responses, they use their reflected mentalizing skills mm-hmm. to think of what these agents want. want. And it helps that they don't have any facial expressions, they don't have any body language, they don't need to interpret any intonation. And there's also emotional coherence in invisible agents that you don't get in ordinary people. How how so? Well, um, people who are non-autistic, we are quite good at hiding our emotions. I, I, I have to disagree. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, of course. Time, yeah. <laughs> if you spend time with autistic people, you'll notice that they are very straightforward mm. and they tell you what's going on, wow. which also gets them into trouble because we're not expected to be that straightforward. We're expected to be, you know, lying a little bit here and there. But these kind of uh, lies, in terms of body language, are really confusing for autistic people. Uh, so if I'm, I'm really annoyed with you, for instance, mm-hmm. I still want you to like me. So I'm trying to hide that I'm annoyed and I'm still mm-hmm. smiling and trying to behave as... Is that what is going on here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, but for autistic people, you know, they're, they're able to feel what other people feel, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to understand what other people are thinking. So this discrepancy between emotional and cognitive input is really confusing. This is also something you get rid of in superhuman agents that are bodiless. And and so is it almost like a limiting of distractions, perhaps, um, that uh, bodiless agents perhaps uh, make it easier, I I think maybe you're suggesting to interact with? Exactly. I think and and I'm not suggesting that autistic people would be more or less religious. That's not that's not my point. But. What my study shows is that, is that the people who have both autism and religion or spirituality in their lives, for them, it seems to be easier to think of uh, minds when you don't have any bodies that messes up communication. And it's pretty much the same if you're communicating with a friend over the Internet. Mm-hmm. It's easier because you don't have the body, right? And also you have a lot of time to think about what the other person means. And you also have time to formulate a proper response. But you don't get that in real life interaction because it's quite fast and quick because we're expecting people to have these intuitive skills. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And, and many people on the spectrum actually prefer kind of uh, remote or internet type communication. Is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. I guess precisely because it's lacking some of the the more maybe embodied features that uh, that we use on an everyday basis um, to understand other people. Exactly. And I was actually asking, this is uh, an example of my anthropological method, if you would call it that. I was... Um, I was hanging out in a sofa one day in one of these schools because I've been spending a lot of time with uh, my participants and other pupils in their schools. And I noticed that uh, autistic people, they're generally in Sweden, they're really good at speaking English. And I asked a group of pupils, like, how come that autistic people seem to be so much better at speaking English? And one guy, he said that, you know, for us, it's so much easier to interact with people online. And therefore, we became we become gamers. And gamers interact in English. And that's why we become better, right? Now, uh, how, how does this open up perhaps some new directions uh, for researching religion and non-religion and, and neurotypicals? Because um, I, as I understand, it's, uh, your, your work primarily concerns individuals on the spectrum, but it also, of course, has implications for people who are not on the spectrum. Yes, uh, so first, uh, when it comes to mentalizing, cognitive research on mentalizing, I think it's important to think of that as a complex construct. It's like a toolbox with different instruments that we can use in different manners. So first, we have this difference between fast and intuitive processes that I've been talking a lot about uh, and the slow and reflective processing. Right. And then there's also the difference between emotional and cognitive empathy. So we sort of have to elaborate with all these different mentalizing aspects. Could could I uh, ask for an example between cognitive and more uh, emotional empathy for our listeners? How, how are the uh, two different there? Yeah, I mean, the emotional uh, empathy is feeling what other people are feeling. So, for instance, if someone is sad, you would become affected by that sadness, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, but the cognitive empathy is more uh, in the head, so to mm-hmm. speak. Uh, you're, this is like, so for instance, if you're nodding, you would know that someone's still listening to you or, <laughs> or uh, you know, you, you, you just get these little cues. So, and, or someone's frowning, for instance, and then you, you, you can interpret that this is an emotional response going on but it's more on a cognitive level that's all right and and so then how does this distinction relate to uh individuals on the spectrum and off the spectrum and belief in supernatural agents 
Well, I think, uh, and my point is that this is for both autistic and non-autistic individuals. I think that we need to acknowledge that people use reflected thinking a lot more than has been expected in the cognitive science of mm -hmm. religion. For instance, non-autistic people might have intuitions about supernatural agency. But if you're living in Sweden, for instance, it's not the norm to be religious. Right. We have a rather secular norm. So that might means that you might discard your intuitions and set for, you know, another explanation. But also in autistic people, uh, I don't really see that it should affect them so much that these intuitive responses are not there because they use uh, these slow processes instead. Yeah, so they're not lacking the intuitive, uh, certainly, but perhaps they're, they're a little bit different and then therefore they rely more on reflective type thinking. Um, and as, as I understand this, you, you've also uh, crept into some interesting um, avenues with your research having to do with, with fantasy. I, I think you touched on earlier and imagination. I was wondering if um, you could further kind of elucidate how those might uh, play into uh, religiosity or non-religiosity for those individuals on the spectrum. Well, uh, something that surprised me in my results was that the major majority of my autistic participants turned out to be fantasy prone. Uh, and some of these fantasy prone people, they're gamers and some of them love fantasy fiction. But what's common for all of them is that they switch between different realities. So they have the empirical reality, which is quite fragmented and difficult and exhausting and then they create their own imaginary realities which they switch into and i suspect this is a kind of coping mechanism okay uh, so they create uh, with the help of their imagination uh, really interesting worlds that they fill with characters that might be influenced from religion, spirituality, but also fantasy fiction and popular culture. It could even be uh, artists, you know, pop stars, for instance. And they have these worlds and they interact with all these characters in a sense that reminds a lot about how cognitive research describes interaction with superhuman agents. Really? Okay. So I think this is something that we need to look into, that if mentalizing is used and it's a non-human agent, I think that's equivalent to the study of gods and spirits and ancestors, which is more traditional. And I also think this is, you know, it's relevant for younger generations. Mm -hmm. This is something really interesting to look into. I, I know uh, on the Religious Studies Project, uh, we usually pride ourselves in uh, challenging uh, traditional conceptualizations of the category of religion and, uh, of course, supernatural agents as well. And uh, what I'm hearing is, is some of your work do, does just that, you know, as well as uh, perhaps uh, cognitive science and of religion in general. Um, and uh, I, I think we can certainly expect it to open up some exciting new avenues for um, uh, religious agencies. They are traditionally 
understood and perhaps um, uh, maybe the magic of Harry Potter or you know, massive multiplayer online gaming and uh, all these other type fantastical imaginative agents that uh, people seem to engage with uh, you know, on a daily basis, I suppose, but perhaps don't think of as religious or spiritual. Uh, I totally agree with you. And for instance, one of my participants who describes his, himself as a Christian, um, he also says that he's totally into Harry Potter, for instance. And until he was 14 years old, he literally believed that there were unicorns. And now when he's older, he says that, well, I, I don't believe in them in the ontological sense anymore. Mm. But they're still, you know, with me and I fantasize a lot about them. And and when I'm fantasizing, it becomes real for me. And I think this is also something that we risk missing out on if we have, you know, if we don't do these explorative studies, mm -hmm. if we just uh, hold on to uh, scales and questionnaires that have always been used because Many of my participants might describe themselves as, well, you know, it's not that they believe in God and they don't go to church, mm -hmm. but they, they still experience a lot of interesting things and they interpret that it's spirits or ghosts or mm -hmm. even demons. Or then you have these like fictional characters as well that they interact with on a daily basis. Well, yeah, it seems like it even, of course, further challenges uh, the notion of, of belief, what it means to believe or whether belief is important, uh, as we often think it is, if there are all these various other imaginative fantasy uh, religious agents that perhaps people wouldn't say they believe in per se, but seem to uh, interact with, engage with, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, emotionally um, and in a number of manners, so... Very right. interesting. Um, right. Just kind of wrapping up here, uh, I was hoping, uh, you know, maybe if you felt we had left anything out of this podcast or if you had any uh, closing words or some uh, takeaway points for the listeners, anything else you'd, you'd like to discuss uh, with us today about your research or the field? I think I would like to return to your uh, previous comment. And I think that when we're uh, researching belief it's very easy to end up in these ontological categories it's like a statement is it true is it not right. it's like a, a number of things that you need to uh, sort of you know hold on to or reject mm -hmm. but this is not interesting for the people that I have interviewed they start from their own experience. And I think the body is important here that, you know, you feel you have a sensed presence of uh, a ghost, for instance. And these sensed presences, then they turn into some kind of notion of what's going on and invisible agency. Right. Yeah. But they don't depart from, you know, thinking, is it true or is it not that there are ghosts? Because it's not interesting for them because they experience them. Mm -hmm. So I think that experience is a really interesting analytical category that we could use a lot more in the cognitive science of religion. Awesome. I think that's a, that's a good note to end on. So. Ingela Vasuri, thank you very much for joining us today on the Religious Studies Project. Thanks, Tommy.
Uh, I want to remind our listeners, be sure to check out some of the previous podcasts that are closely related to today's topic. Um, I'll include some links in the description, uh, uh, such as interviews with uh, Dr. Will Gervais on God's Mind, Your Mind, and Theory of Mind, and also uh, with Dr. Stuart Guthrie on Religion as Anthropomorphism. So, thank you all for listening. Thanks to Tommy and Angela there. Uh, really fascinating topic and, you know, quite personal for me, given that I am the father of an autistic child. And, but I don't think he'll be turning out to be religious in my household. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what, what is, uh, what is religion? Oh, we could get into that. This is, this is a topic that exercises us quite often in the bow bar in Edinburgh. Um, not just uh, regarding children specifically, of course. Um, next week, we've got an interview that Hans van Eigen recorded uh, with Chris Ransford on God and mathematics, which is another excellent topic. We're very used to that sort of science and religion um, uh, construct, um, but we've not really had it in in conversation with mathematics before. So, again, looking forward to that. A nice yeah. barrage of interviews. I can see that that can go in a lot of different directions. I mean, it immediately makes me think of the, uh, for the Freemasons, the God as the great geometer. So, you know, the, the geometric ordering of the universe is the idea of God. Um, at least in certain schools of that. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Exactly. Um, do keep coming back for our Opportunities Digest that Ella Buck has uh, stepped ably into the editing helm of. Um, thanks so much to Ella for taking on that role. Thanks also to our 18 patrons on Patreon, creeping up slowly. Still hoping to hit that 100 mark, but thanks so much to all of you who have subscribed or who've donated using our uh, PayPal options on the website, or indeed who continue to do your um, capitalistic endeavors through our amazon.com.co.uk.ca links. It, it really does make a big difference. Absolutely. We're, we're getting to the point now where we're able to start making some very positive changes. We're seeing the, the way that we can produce episodes and um, the way that we can reimburse people for the effort they're putting into is really improving all the time and that's down to you guys but um, we can go further we can do more so please do consider helping <laughs> exactly i had an interaction on twitter um last week with someone who, who pointed out the, the slight irony of of us uh, uh, attempting to tap um cash-strapped academics for uh cash to pay cash-strapped academics um but um, um so that, that that was quite a useful pointer but um we, we appreciate that many of our listeners will also be in the position of being uh, potentially exploited um, by, by the system. So don't put yourselves out. But if you if you've managed to maybe rise slightly up the ladder um, a little bit, um, remember back in the day when, when you were um, and, and, and right up to the top levels, of course, everyone still does a lot of work for free. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're thinking more about, you know, if you've used our podcast in teaching, you've set it as a reading, you've given it to the class as an exercise or something, it'd be great if you could give something back. <laughs> but enough of the guilt trip for now. Um, keep coming back, keep listening, and come back next week for um, Hands. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. 
brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.